Welcome to the Buddha Sasana Podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. So today I'm going to talk about the miracle of samadhi. Samadhi is, of course, a Pali word. It's usually translated as concentration. It is basically the meditative state. I prefer to translate it as composure for reasons that I'll get into in a minute. I might not use all of these terms, but it'll just be convenient if you... One thing when I talk about samadhi or whenever anybody talks about samadhi, samadhi is very closely related to the term also jhana. They're actually or largely equivalent in the early discourses. But I have to point out a couple of caveats whenever we talk about this subject, that the word samadhi and jhana have two distinct meanings that are almost unrelated to one another. One meaning comes out of the suttas, the earliest discourses of the Buddha, or what are also called the Nikayas, uh, the very earliest stratum of Buddhist texts. The other meaning is found in the Theravada commentarial tradition, particularly represented by a text called the Visuddhimagga, which is actually the basis of modern Vipassana meditation. This text is 5th century AD, so it's almost a thousand years after the Buddha. The meanings of jhana and samadhi had changed considerably during this, the first thousand years of, of Buddhism. And so I will be talking about the use by the Buddha of these terms in the earliest texts. This may contradict what other people understand. It's not that the later texts are wrong. It's just a different system of meditation. And as I say, they're quite dis distinct. So when we look at the earliest texts, we discover a samadhi that is too good to be true. At least it seems too good to be true, but it is. This is a samadhi that produces elated states of mind, states of, of rapture and, and bliss. What the Buddha described as being spiritual pleasures that are far higher than normal sensual pleasures. So that's the first quality we look for. The second quality is that samadhi is largely responsible for insight, for the development of wisdom, and for what we actually call gnosis, what's usually translated as knowledge and vision of things as they really are. It's kind of a, an intuitive understanding. And the third quality, which may surprise some people, is we get samadhi for free. It is effortless. It is something that arises naturally in human cognition and which was exploited by the Buddha. So two of these qualities may be a little surprising to you. You do get this sense in the Visuddhimagga version of samadhi that it produces elated states. But you do not get the second two features, that it is responsible for insight, wisdom, or gnosis. 
which is a very clear function of samadhi in the earliest suttas. Okay, to illustrate this aspect, just let me quote a couple of things that the Buddha said about samadhi. When right samadhi does not exist, for one failing right samadhi, the proximate cause is destroyed for knowledge and vision of things as they really are. And again, there is no jhana, jhana being equivalent to samadhi, for one with no wisdom, no wisdom for one without jhana, but one with both jhana and wisdom, he's on the verge of nibbana. So it's very clear that samadhi has a definite function. It has a role. Remember, right samadhi is the very last factor on the Noble Eightfold Path. And that is because it is the factor that is closest to awakening. Producing knowledge and vision of things as they are is very close. The next step is really awakening, liberation. What we find in the Visuddhi Magga is that samadhi does not have this function. So what's it for? <laughs> we're not told. In fact, we're told we don't need it. We can throw out the last factor on the Noble Eightfold Path. It has no function, except sometimes it is, does bring uh, these elated states of mind. It brings a lot of calmness that we can apply to, the, to our practice as a preparation for, for practice. Okay, the third attribute of samadhi that I discussed is that it is effortless. Okay, now this will surprise people, but you find over and over again in the early Buddhist texts. Let me quote one. Monks, for a virtuous person, one whose behavior is virtuous, no volition need be exerted. Let satisfaction arise in me. It is natural that satisfaction arises in one who is virtuous, one whose behavior is virtuous. Then he goes on. It's natural that joy arises in one with satisfaction. It's natural that delight arises in one who is joyful. It is natural that the body of one with a delighted mind is tranquil. It is natural that one who is tranquil in body feels pleasure. It is natural that the mind of one feeling pleasure is composed in samadhi. For one whose mind is in samadhi, no volition need be exerted. So we have over and over, we see this. Samadhi arises over and over by itself. In fact, in, if you look at the suttas carefully, normally we think when we meditate, if we want to enter a meditative state, we have to do something special, apply some special technique. The most common technique is to follow the breath or some object of meditation. Identify an object of meditation and keep the mind there. Just hang on to it tightly with the mind and the mind will settle into a meditative state. It works. The only thing is, the Buddha never states that we need any kind of special technique at all for entering samadhi. We enter samadhi automatically. So this is the samadhi of the suttas. 
Okay, so I want to take up a particular example just to make this concrete. And this is the practice of metta. I'm sure a lot of you practice metta. Metta means kindness or loving kindness in Pali. Metta is a, is a quality that is put forward in right resolve, the second factor in the Noble Eightfold Path as one of those qualities or attitudes that we want to develop at all costs in, in Buddhism. So metta is a natural human attitude. We all have metta to some degree, and it shows up. It, it usually shows up when it's most in demand. When people are, uh, if there's an accident on the side of the highway, what happens? People stop. As soon as they see the accident, they will pull over. They will rush to help any way they can to help a complete stranger. This is metta. We feel the sense of kindness, but we don't always feel it because we have a lot of attitudes that conflict with it. So we have a lot of ill will. We have anger. We have greed. We have these other attitudes that can conflict with metta, but the metta is, is there as a natural human quality. The idea in Buddhism is to develop it, to develop it so that we can feel metta toward everyone and all living beings, even people that we normally would, would hate, that would be we would think of as being the worst of the worst, our enemies, we can still feel metta as our fundamental guiding quality towards all things. This is what the Buddha demands of us in, in our practice. It's a big demand. It may take years and years, maybe lifetimes to develop to, to the extent that the Buddha wants us to develop metta. So metta practice is usually done in a meditative state. We do it through mental visualizations. We consider different beings, and we, while we're keeping them in mind, we try to keep this attitude of metta, kindness, in mind and see if we can apply it to these beings. And we do this over and over again. So the idea is that this natural human attitude, we refine it in Buddhism. When we refine things in Buddhism, over and over the, the expressions, develop and cultivate are used by the, the Buddha. So metta is one of the things we want to develop and cultivate. So here is a description the Buddha provides of metta practice. When, Bhikkhu, your mind is firm and well settled internally and arisen, bad, unwholesome states do not obsess your mind, then you should train yourself thus. I will develop and cultivate the liberation of the mind by metta, make it a vehicle and basis, carry it out, consolidate it, and properly undertake it. Thus, you should train yourself. When this samadhi, notice he calls this practice already a samadhi, has been developed and cultivated by you in this way, then you should develop this samadhi with thought and deliberation. In the early text, there are four jhanas. We've entered the first jhana. Thought and deliberation are qualities of the first jhana. The mind is active. It's thinking and deliberating. Thought and deliberation can be handy 
But as you get better at it, you actually don't need thought and deliberation anymore. So you can go on to next stage. So the Buddha continues. You should develop it without thought and deliberation. You should develop it with rapture. Okay, before we enter into samadhi, we actually, according to the Buddha, we begin to experience rapture as one of these elated states of mind. So when we are experiencing rapture, but no thought and deliberation, it means we're in the second jhana. You should develop it without rapture. You should develop it accompanied by comfort. Okay, comfort and without rapture refer to the third jhana. So we're going deeper and deeper into more settled states of mind. Why don't we have rapture? Rapture is a kind of pleasure that has a certain degree of excitement. For a very, very still state of mind, rapture is too agitated. It's just got too much energy. So in the third, it actually naturally drops away as the mind settles. And so without rapture, without comfort, and also without thought and examination is the third jhana. Then he says, end, you should develop it accompanied by equanimity, which is a quality that is distinctive of the fourth jhana. So basically what he says when we practice metta, we take it through all the jhanas. Why do we do that? Obviously, it must have some function. What needs to happen first before we really settle is that the mind has to become separated from normal everyday thoughts and activities. So normally, we're in our normal state, we're very much engaged in worldly existence. We have problems, we have bills to pay, we have children to feed, we have all of these things that we're dealing, we have people we're mad at, and so as we sit down in meditation, we just have to let all of that go. When we can let that go, we actually enter the first jhana, according to the early texts. So the mind is quite undistracted at that point. We do not, it's not burdened or hindered by all of these worldly affairs, but it can still be distracted internally. We can still be jumping from one thing to another. So the second step is that we want the mind to be one-centered. And one-centered is described by the word ekaga. It is often translated as one-pointed. What it means is that when we are practicing, in our case, we're practicing metta, we really want the process of controlling attention, which is what samadhi does, to wrap around that one theme, to wrap around metta and ignore everything else so that we are totally engaged in our practice. And we can think of one-centeredness as being shrink-wrapped around that theme. Okay, now there's a problem with one-centeredness because it's almost always translated as one-pointedness. The fact is that ekaga does not mean one-pointedness. It really means one-centeredness, and there's a big difference. We cannot grab onto an object if we're practicing metta. We cannot grab onto the breath or a mantra or a kasina, because if our intention is completely wrapped around that object, our practice of metta stops. 
Metta is very general. We have to be very aware of a lot of mental states. It will not be reduced to one object. And so ekagga really means one-centeredness. So we wrap around the theme of metta through our one-centeredness. Now, this entering the one-centeredness seems to happen within the first jhana, because only the second jhana is actually characterized as being one-centered. And then we wrap our mind even more closely around metta by becoming silent. The discursive mind disappears. We're still aware of our metta practice, but we're not thinking and deliberating about it anymore. This is where people have a conceptual error. They think without thinking and deliberating, where did our metta practice go? The fact is that without thinking and deliberating, the mind is still very, very active. And it's very, very productive. It's even more productive. So we enter silence. The Buddha calls it noble silence in the second jhana. Discursive thinking stops. The voice in the head stops. And yet we're aware. We can sit with our metta practice. We can sit with the experience of metta that is naturally arising. We can sit visualizing what that metta is being applied to. And yet we're not thinking. We're not just thinking discursively at any high level. Okay, how is this possible? This silent state of mind, I think, is what the Visuddhimagga failed to recognize. How important it is and how powerful it is in human cognition. It's still a state of human cognition. It is the silent mind that is most typically associated with virtuosity, with being really, really good at something. If we are really, really good at something, we don't have to think about it. It's that silent mind that's carrying it forward. It's the silent mind that is the virtuoso pianist. We can get an idea of this because we experience this all the time. Learning a new skill is a matter of migrating from our dependence from thought and deliberation onto a different mode of cognition that is not altogether silent, but very, very quiet. Think about when you learn to drive a car. When you learn to drive a car, it's very difficult. <laughs> you have to think about everything. You have to keep all of these things in mind. There's so many variables and things going on around you, and you can barely keep all of that in mind because everything requires thought and deliberation. Pedestrians are scattering in front of you. You have no, You have to think about what is it I'm doing wrong that, that this should be happening. You know, a year later, you can get in your car, drive someplace, and not even remember having driven because it's all silent. This is why when we drive, when we're experienced drivers, we can text while we're driving. We can drink our Starbucks. We can listen to the radio, talk on the phone, have conversations and wish we were at home meditating all at the same time. We can multitask. We've gotten good at driving. The trouble is we don't get any better at driving with more experience in general. And the reason is that we have all of this mental energy that we don't need for driving. So we dissipate it, either that or multitask. 
Samadhi is the antidote to that. It says, even in silent cognition, we are not going to get distracted. We are absolutely shrink-wrapped around the practice of metta. And so this is ultimately the, the purpose of samadhi in the early texts, is that it keeps the mind actively engaged so that we can become more and more proficient and eventually turn our Buddhist practice into a matter of virtuosity.